morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Tuesday, March the 15th, and here are some of the stories we are covering for you this morning. Tropical cyclone Gombe displaces hundreds and kills at least seven people in Malawi and 11 people in Mozambique. District councils are still conducting assessments to establish the extent of damage. And as a department, we have deployed a search and rescue team comprising the Maori Defense Force and the Maori Police Service to Molange and the Palombe districts. And fighting between the Senegalese army and separatist rebels in the Casamance region displaces hundreds around the border area with the Gambia. President Baro has ordered his uh, vice president with relevant stakeholders to ensure that the internally displaced people are taken care of around the border area. And AIDS groups say that Eritrean refugees in Ethiopia face increased attacks and growing hunger as humanitarian access to displaced persons' camps remains limited. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. For our top story in Senegal, the country's military announced Sunday night that it was launching an operation against rebels in the southern Casamance region. The offensive comes amid stepped-up attacks by the MFDC, the Movement of Democratic Forces of Casamance, which are targeting the West African military in the Gambia. Reports say renewed fighting over the weekend displaced hundreds of people in Gambian border villages. Sene Marena is the editor-in-chief of Alcamba Times, a Gambian digital news platform. He tells me that the conflict has been ongoing for over three decades, affecting mostly Gambians living in the border areas with Senegal. The separatist movements in the southern uh, Casamas region of Senegal, known as the MFDC, have been waging a low-level insurgency since uh, the early 80s. Uh, the movement was established by a former uh, a pastor, late uh, Jamakum Senghor, uh, who was uh, fighting for the independence of the uh, southern Senegalese region of Casamas, that is uh, uh, close to the uh, Gambia. So uh, since then, uh, the rebels have been waging this war with the Senegalese uh, armed forces. So recently, just in April, there was a heavy uh, classes between the Senegalese uh, uh, forces serving under economic in the Gambia, resulting into the death of at least uh, uh, four Senegalese uh, military officers and also a capturing of uh, seven of their men who were released last month. So um, yesterday uh, we received uh, information that, you know, the Senegalese military launch attack on the rebels to, you know, push them out from their base. So the operation you know, has resulted into uh, civilians living around the border area, fleeing into Gambia and elsewhere. Okay, so Sene, the fighting seems to be affecting mainly Gambians. What has been the reaction of the government of Gambia? Um, The fighting seriously has been affecting the Gambian communities uh, living around the border area. So when the fight uh, broke out yesterday, there has been report that at least 300 families living around the border area fled their communities into deep into the Gambian side. So this has created a humanitarian crisis along the borderline. And the Gambia Armed Forces has deployed what they call the Quick Reaction Forces 
to, you know, inject hope and confidence in the Gambian population living around that borderline. So earlier today, uh, early Monday morning, government of the Gambia issued a statement also reassuring the Gambian community that they are doing everything to ensure that, you know, safety and security is restored back to those affected communities. So, but many people... Uh, including activists, are not happy with the government because they believe government has not been very proactive in trying to solve this crisis. Because most of the time when this happens, it affects the Gambians living around the border. So President Barrow has, you know, ordered order his uh, vice president with relevant stakeholders to ensure that the internally displaced people are taken care of around the border area. That was Sene Marena editor-in-chief of Alcamba Times, a Gambian digital news platform. Officials in Malawi say at least seven people have been killed and hundreds displaced by tropical cyclone Gombe, which also left 11 people dead in Mozambique. Authorities have deployed search and rescue teams to flood-hit areas. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. GPD Lokamula is a spokesperson for Malawi's Department of Disaster Management Affairs. He says reports show the cyclone caused heavy damage in about 10 districts, mostly in the south of the country. For instance, the Mochinga District Council reports that a 78-year-old man has died after being hit by a collapsing wall uh, that is in Paramount Kawinga's area. The very same council also reports that a 49-year-old woman, her 32-year-old daughter and her 2-year-old grandson have all been washed away when they were trying to cross uh, Namandanje River in Tie Ruonde. He says reports from Mulanje district indicate a police station, the local revenue authority offices and an immigration office at the border with Mozambique have been submerged and temporarily closed. The report further indicates that the Chikwawa Nsanje Road has been cut off in the Chikwawa district, making the Nsanje district inaccessible by road. In the Palombe district, an evacuation camp hosting people affected by tropical storm Anna in January was also submerged, leaving the occupants homeless. District councils are still conducting assessments to establish the extent of damage. And as a department, we have deployed a search and rescue team comprising the Maori Defense Force and the Maori Police Service to Molange and the Palombe districts. The flooding comes as Malawi starts to recover from the effects of a tropical storm Anna, which hit Malawi. The storm affected more than 900,000 people in 17 of the country's 28 districts. Anna killed about 80 people in Madagascar, Mozambique, and Malawi. Another 18 people in Malawi are still missing following that storm. Lucien Tilatila is acting director at the Department of Climate Change and Meteorological Services in Malawi. She says that between global warming and land degradation, Malawi should prepare for more cyclones and more flooding. Because most of the land is bare, you know, so no trees, no vegetation. So when these waters come, the cause of these floods is very, very high. And the temperatures are increasing over the oceans with this global warming, climate change. We expect that these cyclones will be developing more and more. She says the impact 
can be mitigated by rethinking Malawi's building codes. For example, if our houses are not withstanding the torrential rains of 48 hours, that means we need also to go back on a drawing board and see how we can design structures like buildings, roads, bridges, which can withstand this kind of hazards in the future. That's the only way maybe we can adapt to these cyclones when they come. Currently, Malawi government is emphasizing the need for people living in flood-prone areas to voluntarily relocate. Many people are resisting the move, largely for fear of losing their ancestral land. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Aid groups say Eritrean refugees in Ethiopia are facing increased attacks and growing hunger as humanitarian access to displaced persons' camps remains limited. The groups are calling on Ethiopian authorities to protect refugees and allow much-needed assistance in two besieged areas of the country. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's African News Center in Nairobi. Eritrean refugees living in Ethiopia continue to face hunger and attacks as fighting in the country's northern areas continues. According to refugees who spoke to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, Orcha, unidentified men attacked the Barahle camp last month, killing five people. Faith Kasina is the UN Refugee Agency spokesperson for Eastern Africa, the Horn of Africa and the Great Lakes region. She says Eritrean refugees are fleeing conflict areas to safer areas. The conflict has also reached some of those refugee camps in those three regions, you know, where we have seen um, refugees being displaced or forced to flee yet again. Others have been wounded and some have also been killed. And so the situation continues to be extremely worrying for refugees, particularly because a lot of them have to deal with the reality of being forced to flee yet again. Ethiopia hosts at least 140,000 Eritreans who fled persecution and other abuses in their country. Most of the refugees are sheltered in the Tigray region, scene of the heaviest fighting between Ethiopia's government forces and the Tigray Liberation People's Front rebel group. Others have moved south to the Afar and Amhara regions, where the TPLF is battling pro-government militias. Humanitarian agencies have had difficulty accessing the populations in need because of roadblocks and insecurity. The UN Humanitarian Office says it was recently able to distribute 100 metric tons of healthcare and nutrition supplies to Tigray. The aid helped about 10,000 people and at least 22,000 refugees. Another 190,000 receive assistance in Afar and Amhara. Kasena of the UN Refugee Agency says more people are left without shelter. With the deterioration of the security situation and the ongoing conflict, you know, many people, including refugees, are likely to be further displaced to flee their homes or where they're living in settlements in urban areas to other areas that are relatively safer um, in search of assistance, in search of security. Amnesty International of Africa researcher Fiseha Tekle says some Eritrean refugees are leaving Ethiopia altogether. A number of Eritreans are leaving to other countries, especially through the Kenya border towards Uganda, most of them. And while in route, they were arrested by police officials at the, at the border or after crossing the border, 
And many of the times they are uh, taken to court and uh, fined for money or with a, with uh, arrest, especially in Kenya. So some of them, they were able to make it to Uganda. The UN humanitarian agency says its operations in the north of the country continue to be restricted at a time when about 870,000 people need its assistance each week. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. You're listening to Debrek Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Let's go to Southern Africa in Iswatini, where banned political parties say that they are planning to counter King Muswati III's preferred Sibaya dialogue to reduce tensions and to try to resolve the kingdom's political instability. Sibaya is the annual general meeting that allows the presentation of controversial and pressing views in the kingdom. It comes as representatives from the Southern African Development Community are calling on stakeholders to engage in dialogue to end tensions, violence, and restore political stability in the country. The groups have been holding talks to pressure the administration in Babane to engage in genuine dialogue. Vusi Shwangwe is the leader of the Swaziland People's Liberation Movement. He tells VOS Peter Cloty that Sibaya is not an appropriate forum to discuss demands for reforms that will enable citizens to choose their own leaders. So everybody's in agreement that uh, there needs to be proper dialogue so that as a nation we can find each other. When he, call, he calls the few people that are going to go, go into his call, who are going to be staging a counter-demonstration ticket and march within the royal presence, whereby we are going to be saying, we do not recognize this staged Mickey Mouse uh, dialogue that would have caused. The reason we're saying that is uh, the Swazi people in their different formations last year, we descended at a place called Boxbeck in Johannesburg, where we all agreed that we need for a proper international standard uh, recognized dialogue to take place. So we are saying that we need to be included in the drafting of the terms of reference. It's not shouldn't be, I mean, the terms of reference for, for the dialogue. It shouldn't be just King Mswati and, uh, and, and Sadek. The mass democratic movement, participants in the mass democratic movement also needs to, be, to, to, to form part and part of the, the, the terms of reference that are going to, to govern uh, and to run this uh, negotiation process. But Vusi, yeah. Vusi, why do you think this plan will work? Uh, we think it will work because we have seen in previous uh, demonstrations, including one where we went uh, to the United Nations offices in Mbabane. We also did a similar march to when we went to the American embassy in Ezulini here in Swaziland as well. So the whole strategy is to bring as much international uh, attention to the impasse and also to bring the attention to the world because what he's going to do now is going to send the, the world into a dummy to say the Swazi nation is sitting down while dialoguing and trying to craft a new way forward politically. Babusi, with mm. this strategy, are you not going to put members or supporters of your party in danger? The good thing with this strategy is that it's not just a, a strategy, as I alluded to earlier, a strategy that... Uh, uh, we've opened up the space uh, to trade unions to say, as a, as a Swazi nation, let us descend in our numbers. And over and above that, we are then going to be writing, the process already, has already started, we're going to be writing to the different embassies, the different international organizations, the different news agencies to say, we are going to be coming to this place and the whole world will be at the royal present on the day when the nation descends to the royal call. So 
we are saying it would be very folly of him and it would actually be adding more to the charges that are going to be brought to him if he's going to indiscriminately kill a people that would have uh, answered a call of him saying come let us let us meet we would have gone there on his call secondly we would have been exercising what a provision that is in his illegitimate constitution that says people have a right of assembly and association so that is the premise that we are using to say that this shouldn't be a, a confrontational uh, uh, engagement. And also, we're going to be coming there in, in our numbers. That was Vusi Shongwe, the leader of the Swaziland People's Liberation Movement. The Break Africa continues. The East African community is reviewing a law to ease the free movement of goods and doing business in the region. The move comes as the East African community member states increase the number of non-tariff barriers despite ratifying the customs union in 2004. Moses Javierimana has more. East African community lawmakers are reviewing a law that aims to ease the implementation of a customs union which came into force in 2004. The block includes application of the common customs law, the elimination of internal tariffs, the introduction of the common external tariff and the removal of the non-tariff barriers. Among the non-tariff barriers include the taxation of transit goods within the region. Bagamuhunda Kenneth is the Director General of Customs and Trade at the East African Community Secretariat in Arusha, Tanzania. And the, the amendments we're undertaking in the Customs Management Bill covers a number of aspects, but more importantly, it relates to the single customs territory, and the single customs territory is a, a flagship project that we started implementing in 2014. Uh, for example, we have been deploying people from other countries to the ports of entry. We had not put it in the legal instruments. We have now created the provision for that. Under a single customs agreement, partner states are able to clear their goods at the point of entry to help reduce the cost and time spent at the border points. George Odong, a lawmaker from Uganda, explains why the Customs Act is set to be amended. There are so many provisions of the Act that have been overtaken by events. And what we are doing here is to make sure that we bring it into speed with um, the challenges that the community is undergoing currently, but also with the changes that have happened either in terms of technology, in terms of the volumes of goods, in terms of the quality of our own integration. Aden Abdikadir is a regional lawmaker from Kenya. Despite the existence of the Customs Management Act, not very many countries within the East African community have fully implemented these particular acts and protocols, something that is required of them because they are party to all the protocols and they are party to all the uh, acts that are currently in existence. Among the challenges that faced the region in the past years is the failure to sign the Economic Partnership Agreement with the European Union as a bloc. That failure is due to the challenges include Burundi, which by then was under sanctions by the European Union, accused of human rights violations in 2015. Leontin Zaimana is a Burundian lawmaker. Now that the European Union has lifted these sanctions, I think the government will look at this uh, APA differently. They will have a space of negotiation, of talking again with the European Union and to see how the Burundi government can join other member states of the East African community to, to ratify these agreements. With the East African community set to admit its seventh member, 
Challenges still remain in the elimination of the non-tariff barriers that have led to amend the Customs Act in hope for all countries to facilitate the free movement of goods in the region. Moses Aviarimana for Voice of America. As the world marks the second anniversary of the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, health, economic and social disruptions caused by this global crisis continue to evolve. According to the International Food Policy Research Institute, the impacts of the pandemic are prolonged and likely to endure for years to come, with the most affected being the poor, marginalized and vulnerable groups. Maureen Ojambo reports. Millions of people in developing world are reversing back into poverty two years after the COVID-19 pandemic. According to a report by the World Bank, the new number of poor people are more urban, better educated and less likely to work in agriculture than those living in extreme poverty before COVID. Speaking in a virtual media briefing, a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, James Dallow, says the number of poor people is projected to increase by 2030. It's more than the world had expected before COVID-19 pandemic hit, urging governments to invest more in agri-food system. By losing a year's worth of income growth, we would expect poverty to be 65 million people larger or higher as a result. And I think one of the things that we have learned is that the agri-food system has a crucial role to play. During COVID, it was a crucial safety net. It was a refuge for a lot of urban uh, workers who were displaced and made unemployed. But we also know that the agri-food system is a crucial way of reducing poverty because it's where most of the world's poor are living. And so if we're thinking about building back better, I think it is about the importance of the agri-food system, which has increasingly been slipping off the radar in terms of public investment, in terms of um, public sector support. A report released on Friday by the United Nations Human Settlement Program and World Food Program, WFP, shows that the socioeconomic situation of urban poor in sub-Saharan Africa has worsened following the COVID-19 pandemic, with millions of people facing acute food insecurity and malnutrition. Chris Nikoi is the WFP's regional director for Western Africa. He says hunger and malnutrition in sub-Saharan Africa have long been associated with rural areas, but the pandemic is revealing the changing face of hunger, exposing the vulnerabilities of urban poor. Another senior fellow researcher at the International Food Policy Research Institute, Niha Kumar, says most people who did not get assistance from the government after losing their source of income have found it difficult to bounce back. People who are not covered in safety nets, they had nothing to go back to. No transfers were... Initially, when we were going into the pandemic, it was thought that, well, their structures are in place. I do think non-poor in the urban areas are definitely very, very underserved. We've seen, in, for example, in Ethiopia, that people who were receiving the national safety net transfer was they were protected, but it's not like they did really well. Omar Sila is the director of the UN Habitat Regional Office for Africa. He says governments should increase food assistance programs and ensure they meet the needs of the urban poor. This given the current trends of urbanization that are largely driven by those migrating from rural to urban areas in search for work. Former director of consultative group for international agricultural research, John McDermott, says 
Most developing countries find it challenging when it comes to investing in agri-food systems. And, and a lot of them have food systems where there's fresh markets, where people are bringing things locally. And we found that there's a lot of challenges in those. For example, we are seeing more epidemics. We're seeing more emergence of pathogens from animals, either wild animals or domestic animals to humans. We are seeing foodborne diseases. Um, if you go back to WHO, the foodborne diseases in low and lower middle income countries from fresh foods, microbial contamination. So these are big burdens. According to the World Bank study, pandemic-related job losses and poverty across the world are hitting already poor and vulnerable people, as well as driving millions of more into poverty. Reporting for VUS Daybreak Africa, I am Maureen Ojembo in Sacramento, California. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America.